Welcome back, everybody, to the Through Help and Back podcast. Uh, you know, for listeners of this podcast know, this is a time focused on issues related to mental health, substance abuse issues, uh, focused on positive psychology, and just really looking for solutions, looking to educate folks and give them the information they need. If it's somebody that is looking for help or somebody who has a loved one who's looking for help, uh, hopefully we're uh, a source for that. Hopefully we're somebody who can get you in the know and get you a little bit more comfortable with the process. Um, as with all of our episodes, uh, this podcast is sponsored by A New Behavioral Health. Um, a New Behavioral Health is an outpatient provider of mental health and substance abuse services located in Ohio and New Hampshire. Um, I don't know how long that's going to stay true. I mean, new, A New is growing fast. Uh, for those of you who don't really know, uh, we started with one location in, in Athens, Ohio, and uh, we're, if we look at everything that's planned and everything that's happening, we'll up, be up near 10 locations in the next month or so uh, with plans to expand from there. But for now, if you or a loved one, somebody you know, care about yourself, is in Ohio, is in New Hampshire, looking for these types of services, looking for therapy, looking for psychiatric services, nursing, case management, um, give us a call. You can find us at anewbh, so A-N-E-W-B-H.com. Um, and not only is a new behavioral health sponsor in this podcast, but they've done a wonderful job of devoting a lot of their time and giving us some excellent guests uh, to come on and help support the podcast with their content and their expertise and their intelligence and their knowledge. And we have that today. Uh, we have the man, the myth, the legend, the COO, Chief Operating Officer of a new behavioral health, Matt Kahn. How you doing, Matt? Doing well. How are you today? I'm hanging in there, man. Life is good. Our, our Buckeyes won. We're here on a, a nice long Labor Day weekend, so we're celebrating that win. And weather's starting to change out here in New Hampshire. I don't know how it is in Ohio where you are, but it's feeling pretty good over here. When I rolled into Mount Vernon, it was still sunny and 80 today. Yeah, nice. Nice, so, nice, nice. Yeah. Which is fine with me. I'll hang on to it as long as we can. Matt, Matt will take all the sunshine. I'll take all the snow. That's one of the ways which right. we uh, <laughs> complement each other very well. So it works out. And, uh, just to just to clue you guys in who are listening at home, this is uh, this is a weekend film. We're doing this on a Sunday, and Matt's letting you know he just rolled into Mount Vernon near one of our locations. Actually, near two of our locations down the road from a third, uh, down down the road from fourth, about to open up in Akron, Ohio. So Matt's a hardworking man. He's a hard traveling man. We appreciate you being in Mount Vernon. Appreciate you making time for this podcast as well. So yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to. It. Yep, and Matt, Matt's the perfect guest for this in a lot of ways. I mean, we've tackled a lot of issues on other episodes with regards to solution-focused therapy. We've talked about CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. We've talked about depression and anxiety. And in this episode, we're going to change it up a little bit. We're going to talk about I, probably all of those issues, but in the context of looking at the situation in, in rural America. So um, myself, you know, I grew up in Ohio. Um, Definitely something that would be considered a very small town. I don't know if it'd be considered rural, but it's probably right on the edge between rural and, and a real city there with Dayton, Ohio, right down the road. But Matt grew up and, and still resides in Wheelersburg, Ohio, so down in Sido County. So Matt is a uh, a born and bred expert on, on rural America and, and the challenges you guys are facing. <laughs> Appalachia, that's right. So. That's right. Tell us a little bit about that, Matt. What was it like growing up? I mean, we we got I got some stats and I got an article here to read, but you've got the the ground level views. What was it like growing up, you know, down in Appalachia? Well, so the first half of my life compared to the second half could be <laughs> looked at night and day different, actually. Um, 
So, you know, yeah, I grew up about 15 minutes down the road from Portsmouth. Um, you know, growing up, there's a lot of cornfields, uh, a lot of farmland. It was very rural. Um, as time went on, you know, we, we started catching up a little bit with some fast food restaurants, uh, a little more shopping centers, but still nothing compared to like you'd see in the bigger cities. Um, you know, everybody knew each other. Uh, local high school football games were the things to do. Um, every, it, it was just a, a fun little community that, um, you know, we were proud of our, our sporting events. We were proud of, you know, what, what we had down there. And, um, you know, like I said, that was kind of the first half of life. Um, the second half, quite a bit different. Uh, we hit with the drug pandemic. There's a book out there called Dreamland, which focuses on Portsmouth, Ohio. And, you know, you hear the stories of the pill mills and, you know, the kind of pipeline from Miami, Florida, the Huntington, West Virginia, the Portsmouth, and then up through Detroit. And Portsmouth was, like I said, the heart of it all. So nowadays, um, Portsmouth has poverty areas, a lot of drug-stricken um, areas. It, it's, it's kind of rough. It's, it's hard to drive down by, by Branch Ricky Park and see what it looks like nowadays compared to 20 years ago. And, you know, but we're, I think we're on the mend a little bit down there. There's some community leaders that are really trying to turn things around band together and try to build this city back up again. So like I said, it's on the men looking a lot better and, you know, hoping to get to where Portsmouth is proud again of what they once were and fighting back hard. So looking forward to it. Looking forward to seeing what we can do down there. It's, it's an interesting description that sort of half of life and then the other half, but, you know, um, as a little bit of background, I actually met Matt in Portsmouth, Ohio. Well, I met you not in Portsmouth before, but I spent several years playing baseball with you in Portsmouth, Ohio. Yeah. We both went to Shawnee State, so a little plug for the Bears there. and um, Still proud supporters of Shawnee State Athletics. and You can see the a new information on the Shawnee State Athletics website and stuff like that. And Portsmouth was, was a really special place in my life and a place where we were friends for a long time. But going through Portsmouth and other towns like it, I mean, if you travel up and down the Ohio River or the interior of Ohio, um, even where I'm in New Hampshire, same kind of way, you go through these towns and it's almost like going through a time capsule because you can see the bones of what used to be there. You can see the downtown area. You can see the attractions. You can see where the different industries were there. There's some some big old coal mills, and, you know, and the, the shipping areas right there on the Ohio River. And, it, and you know, and you look at it and you, you're like, wow, you know, 50 years ago, this was really, really a spot. You know, this was really growing and almost like a boom town. And then now, of course, today, like you described, I mean, there's a lot of those places are vacant, um, you know, and you can just sort of see that before and after as you as you travel through. Um, is that something you noticed growing up? I mean, do you see those things kind of coming and going as you grew up and see that 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 area falling back or did it feel like it happened quickly? It, it, it's literally like I'm 46 years old. You cut my life in half in the first 23 years compared to the second 23 are, are really like night and day difference. Um 23 years old, I was graduating from college, uh, moved away for a little bit, and then come back, and I come back right when the drug happenings were going on. So, yeah, I mean, you know, you see the flood wall and the murals down there, that shows the, the big industries we once had um, way before my time. And, you know, I mean, of course, growing up down there, my, my grandparents and, and others worked in those industries. And, of course, you know, I, I know plenty of people that were were once there and 
it's it's falling apart. Those industries left. Uh, the the railroad and the river wasn't the main source of transportation throughout the years. It wasn't the way of shipping things quite so much anymore. So things changed, and the industry left. And unfortunately, somehow the pill mills and the prescribing physicians kind of popped up down there, uh, and it took its toll. It took its toll bad. There's like I said, poverty-stricken areas of places where I can remember as a kid that were not that way. Um, and again, I mentioned Branch Rickey Park earlier. It's the Branch Rickey Park 2022 does not look like it did back in the, the 90s. And, you know, it was a minor league ballpark at that time, a lot of history. Uh, you know, some big-time names have played on that field throughout the years, and now it's, it's, it's rough. It looks rough. It's, uh, it's sad, really. Well, the football, the football field right next to it, right? I mean, it used to host a professional team. And- sure, yeah, Spartan Stadium. Um, the Portsmouth Spartans were nowadays they're the Detroit Detroit Lions. Um, so they, you know, there's um, documented history of them beating the Super Bowl champion the, uh, Green Bay Packers down there. Um, so it's yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. There's a lot of uh, information around the stadium about it. Um, it's just, you know, it's just, like I said, falling apart, though. And, and great people down there and a real sense of pride in that area, which is always interesting as an outsider kind of moving down there for college. It was sort of, you know, you look at the external, you look at, like I said, the empty Main Street and things like that. And you're sort of like, man, where does where does that grit and where does that sense of pride come from? But then you start to learn the history and you're like, OK, this was this was a pretty special area throughout history in different ways, you know. So uh, it's interesting that that remains. Sure. And, you know, very proud of my hometown, Wheelersburg. I mean, our softball team just just won the state championship um, a couple of years back. Uh, the baseball teams won back to back. Football won in 2017. So, I mean, my 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 home school and my hometown, they're, they're still doing their thing, fighting hard. But, you know, to act like they've not been hit with it would be a lie. I mean, it's everywhere down there. Well, and that's what I'm curious about, too, from an experience standpoint. So you mentioned the pill mills. Do you want to talk, I mean, a little bit, if somebody's, you know, from New Hampshire is listening to this or somebody who didn't go through that experience, what do you mean when you say the pill mills and what was the impact on the community? Yeah, the pill mills was kind of the slang term for pain clinics. And I can remember pain clinics that even actually in Wheelersburg, around the Portsmouth area. And basically what those were, um, people would go to these these clinics, um, they have an injury. Instead of going to the urgent care or the hospital, they would go to the pain clinics. I, I fell off my lawnmower, hurt my arm. You know, doctor would prescribe opioids or whatever he saw fit. And it got to the point where people were coming and just doing paying with cash. And it was just, you know, they were taking those um, either heading north to Detroit, south to Huntington. And, and then it was, like I said, that line from, Miami, Miami, Florida, to Huntington, to Portsmouth, Detroit. And I, I know like State Highway Patrol would uh, catch people with uh, Michigan tags, with my uh, Florida tags all the time. And um, that's what they were doing. They were field runners. And, you know, throughout my career in the social services field, you know, met many of them to where they, they talked about their times, uh, you know, hitting the pill mills or the paint clinics. And, Heading down to heading down to Florida, make some money, and it was just back and forth. And it before long, um, DEA got word. I mean, the, the main uh, 
it's it's kind of funny. I mean, without mentioning names, the the main guy kind of behind the show down there, I, I knew him knew him well, knew his knew his family, knew his kids. Uh, grew up playing ball against them all, and um, everybody was kind of shocked. And he uh, he took off. <laughs> he took off. Uh, tried to run for the border, and they they caught him. But uh, it, it's it's an ironic story. The mansion that he had um, across the river in Kentucky, overlooking Portsmouth, is now a um, inpatient um, substance abuse center. So yeah, pretty pretty cool how that that turn of events happened there. So, but yeah, he he was kind of the guy behind the show there for a while, and there were many of them, many of them. Uh, but uh, you know, I remember. The day well when the FBI, DEA, everybody comes in and just breaking doors down basically and just changes all up. And so once that happened, there's plenty of people running around the streets. Oh, what am I going to do now? And that's when the crime started. Um, crime, uh, a lot of, you know, people trying to figure out ways to get their drugs, uh, breaking and entering, assaults. It, it was a mess. It was a mess for a while. It was like, what has happened here? And um, like I said, you know, there's some good people around the area now doing what they can, trying to work uh, to clean up. Uh, there, there's a local local gentleman in town, um, started a CrossFit. Um, he's he's done real well. He, he hires, you know, addicts to run that CrossFit, hires them to work in his T-shirt shop and different areas. And he, he's done a great job for the Portsmouth area. And, um He's full of ideas and continues to do things. So and there's other people like that, you know, trying to build different industry, restaurants, really cleaning up uh, Second Street, which is, you know, right on the river. And, you know, it's, uh, like I said, you know, the, the past 10 years, maybe five, 10 years, it looks a whole lot different down there in a good way. So things are turning around. Yeah, and we'll, we'll talk here in a little bit. I know that you and I have talked extensively about your plans to, contribute to that resurgence and contribute to that rebirth with some of the work that Anu is doing in that area and planning on doing. So um, I think it's always special when it's somewhere that you are so personally connected to, right? And you've seen the impact to be part of the rebuild is, you know, it's it's the best thing you can do, I think, to turn it around. Um, you know, I was digging through it because, you know, I know you've lived that experience and like I said, that Dreamland was written about it. And there's all these different kind of outside looking in kind of perspectives. But if you think about it and can kind of reserve the judgment, if you think about the scenario you just, just described, you know, industry leaves, people are trying to find new ways to get their needs met. They got to make money, right? And so these pain management clinics become an opportunity. You can hit the secondary market. You can resell those things. Now people can flood in and go, well, that's, you know, you're a drug dealer, you're a bad person. But I, I think that's very easy to say from the outside looking in when the industry that supported your family for so many years just disappears and you've got to find some solutions, you know? And so then behind that, once those pain management clinics are shut down, what we know about addiction is, is one, it destroys families, destroys individual lives. And also once you're captured by addiction, it's not just as simple as just going, well, I'm just going to stop, right? So now they've got needs that need to be met and the pain management clinics go away. And so, like you said, the crime and the secondary drug market takes over from there because people are put in a position where they've, they've got a need now, you know, and they've got to find a way to deal with that. So it's really a really sad string of events and um, when I looked it up, it's funny you mentioned the pandemic, the real pandemic of as far as the, the drug addiction and the mental health issues. The article I found speaking about, you know, rural America, it says the silent epidemic is ravaging rural America. Um, 
I mean, pretty dramatic terms, but they talk about basically a sense of distress. And they said that now following the pandemic, that people who feel like they live in a high level of distress has risen to 28% in rural areas. And so you've got people who've got elevated needs, but then what resources are available, right? And says so rural areas tend to have 20% fewer primary care providers, so less doctors to deal with that distress. Uh, 65% of rural counties don't even have a psychiatrist, right, that are assigned to that area. And so people take that for granted, like, well, which, you know, which provider should I go see or which, you know, which you know, doctor, you don't even have an option, right? So now travel is an issue. You have to travel to outside counties to find that one psychiatrist that will see you. Um, 81% of rural counties don't have a psychiatric nurse practitioner. Um, even the lack of access to broadband internet in rural homes uh, is four times higher uh, than near cities and near the urban homes. And so then there's other challenges, right? So people who develop these mental health issues, um, culturally, there's barriers. Like people tend to be independent. They don't want to ask for help. Uh, there's a lack of trust in anyone to maintain confidentiality in small, close-knit communities, right? I mean, you think about what you just said. There's these big national stories like, oh, I know this guy. I know his family. I know the house he lived in. Um, that's It's hard to protect people's confidentiality when you know, they, they watch you walk into a clinic and they, oh, they know something about you all of a sudden, right? And so everybody knows fear, everybody. Everybody knows everybody. They know their stories. And difficulty getting appointments, time and transportation, um, the unreliable Internet service. Lack of adequate health insurance coverage. So um, you mentioned that your kind of entire career has been in the human services field. What um, have you encountered those type of challenges with working that population and what things did they not include on the list? Like what kind of challenges do you see for people who actually want help in those areas? Like how, what are they facing and how have you you know, worked to kind of provide that in that situation? It, it is tough being down there in that area where like I guess, you know, most people know everybody. I know my, when, when my career first started, you know, 23, 23 years old, figured, figured out I was done playing baseball, had to, had to get a real job at that point. And uh, my first job was in children's services. Didn't even know what it was. Um, very quickly found out. And uh, you can't even go to Walmart anymore with, uh, without running into somebody that you've had to go in their home and, you know, Unfortunately, maybe even take their kids. Um, that that's happened. So that confidentiality piece is tough. Um, and people are proud. Obviously, they don't want they don't want everybody knowing their business. So, yeah, I mean, you you run across that quite a bit. And then you know the the second part with you know mental health or drug addiction, same thing. You know, uh, everybody if something goes wrong, everybody hears about it. So it it is a challenge down there. Tell me a little bit more about that time in children's services, because you said you didn't really know what you were getting into. I mean, that's kind of adjacent to the addiction issue. We talk about how addiction destroys families and folks and social social workers and folks in children's services, unfortunately, are left to pick up the pieces a lot of times. Um, what, what what did you get into that maybe you didn't expect there? Or what was it what was it like during your time at children's services? It's definitely uh, working in the trenches of the human services field. There, there's no doubt about it. And I didn't. I, I had. I don't even think I had heard of children's services at that that point in my life. Uh, just saw what the uh, requirements were. Saw that I just recently had got a bachelor's degree and I could maybe do it. And they hired me. Um, about the first week I was there, I was like, I'm, I'm probably not going to be here two weeks. And then I ended up spending the first 10 years of my career there. Um, it was a wild experience. I, I you know, could probably uh, definitely write a book on the good, the bad, and the ugly. 
Um, Ten years were were definitely long enough, but at the same time, very thankful I had that experience. Um, Made me aware of what really is out there. Uh, Saw some things I wish I wouldn't have seen, but um, again, it kind of made me aware and understand the for the next part of my career in, in focusing on mental health really. um, and, and addiction. I, you know, I see uh, the struggles that families have. And, you know, you kind of talked about earlier, you know, if the industry goes out, I've got a family to feed. How am I going to do it? And how some of these people go to selling, selling pills. And it wasn't just that. It was, uh, it was also, I remember there for a while, breaking in houses and stealing copper was the big thing. Um, getting copper pipes and wires out of homes. So, um, you know, it's it's obviously crime. It's obviously illegal. But at the same time, you know, they're trying to do everything they can do to feed their families. So there is a little bit of compassion there. Uh, but, yeah, it was a pretty, pretty wild ride working in children's services, without a doubt. Were there, any, um, were there any themes that kind of emerged? I mean, I know you said I saw some stuff I didn't want to see, so we don't have to get into specifics. But was it mostly about lack of resources? Was it mostly financial distress? Like, what were the themes that you you dealt with? I, I think you could say all of that, really. I mean, when I was there, I worked in. I, wow, I uh, I worked in investigations, um, which was the first ones through the door in certain certain situations, uh, which was the, probably without doubt the toughest part of my career there. I worked in ongoing. Um, ongoing is when you have custody whether temporary or permanent of kids and you're you're their case manager basically and then of course i worked in um as a court liaison with unruly and delinquent things and that was uh that was probably my favorite part of, of my my time there um trying to help these guys and again you know their lack of resources there's not a whole lot for these people to do or these kids to do um if, if they weren't playing sports and even the ones that did play sports, you know, I mean, there was still a lot of trouble to get into basically out of boredom. And, you know, so I worked in, you know, every aspect, uh, like I said, 10 years worth. And yeah, yeah. I saw some, saw some ugly things <laughs> without that. Did it, did it help your time being an unruly teen to work with those unruly teens? Were you able to connect? Yeah, it kind of did. Yeah. I, I was able to speak from experience, I guess. So Yeah. <laughs> Well, and I'm curious too because um, I mean I, I make that joke, but you, you turned out pretty well, and, and you know I know you raised your family down there, and you've, you've you know, put together a great career. And what do you think the difference between folks like yourself who were able to stay you know on track and, and create a future for yourself in that same environment? What's the difference between somebody like you and, and those folks who fell off? I mean, every case is different, but is there any theme to the ones who make it and the ones who don't? Uh, honestly, yeah. I mean, I would I would really have to, to thank my parents for my upbringing. I think. Um, I mean, yeah, without doubt, I uh, I have both parents in the home. I was very fortunate there. I uh, was into athletics. I played sports, and um, that was just kind of my life. Honestly, I mean, I, I my love for sports probably kept me grounded in in the other ways. Uh, Made me get the grades, made me stay out of trouble. And because, you know, if you don't get good grades, you get in trouble, you're not playing ball. And I, that was that was kind of what kept me, uh, I guess, in the in the right lane all the way through um, that. And, the, you know, a, a respect and the fear, um, so, you know, not just with my parents, but kind of really with my community of Riversburg. Um, 
you know, you, you act a certain way. You, you don't do certain things. And I was, you know, I, I followed that. Um, but then when I take a look at some of the ones that, that maybe got in some trouble, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, every case is different. Of course, there were guys that, that play ball, uh, or even have both parents in the home, but I think for the most part, um, you know, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I, th- I think every case is different and, you know, I mean, I, I don't know if there's a, a reoccurring theme or a reason or anything like that, but I think uh, probably upbringing is probably without doubt the most important. Yeah. And that part of why I asked is there's, you know, there's, it, it's considered somewhat controversial, but there's a lot of people who will sort of bang the drum on this idea of like a complete family system, right? Like if you have two parents in the home, uh, one, you've got double the help. You, you tend to have extra resources if both parents work and things like that. And they just are some real key advantages to having an intact family unit. Um, and other folks may feel like that's controversial. Um, I didn't. I didn't. I wasn't raised in a home with two parents. Uh, so, you know, I see it both ways. I mean, every case is individualized. But I hear that theme over and over where it's like, well, if you can do things to support families, if you can do things to strengthen families, um, the children have, you know, exponential better odds of making doesn't mean they will make it doesn't mean they won't fall off but their odds are, are much more in their favor so um, I'm, al- I'm also curious too you know because a lot of a, a social worker's role is aligning those resources is getting families connected with you know other types of resources that will help them so you know either into children's services capacity or since then um, how difficult was that for you working in a rural setting when families say hey I need a b and c and you're like Gosh, I don't really even know where to to start to get them connected to those type of places, you know. Yeah. So back then, in, in my career at Children's Services, like I said, that was that was that's been many years ago now. Um, there was one site service in in town, and to get into that was pretty tough. Uh, so we actually, had, I remember, had a contract with a group out of Lancaster, where the the team from Lancaster would come down the side of the county. How far and, is that? Dude, Lancaster. It's a uh, almost a couple hours. Oh wow! Hour and a half. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hour and a half, I guess, probably. And that's their that's their closest provider that you connect them with. That was that was the closest provider, other than um, like I said, there was one one in town, but they were flooded. They they uh, they took care of basically the entire the entire uh, county. They're still there, and they're still there, and uh, you know, I mean. They did the best they could back then, I'm sure. It's just, you know, there was only so many employees they had. So, so in those in those cases, do you end up just kind of bearing the, the burden and just kind of filling those gaps yourself, or how would you handle it? You really did. Um, you know, as a young 23-year-old bachelor degree case manager, you were you were learning how to do therapy. <laughs> you were learning how to, I mean, you you like I said, it was it was the working in the trenches. In, in the human services field, without doubt, um, you bounce things off other other staff. You, you did have supervisors, of course, for their support, and they did a good job. But you know, at so many times, you're you're limited. You're you're just limited what you can do, and you spend that time with the, the kids or the families, and you you work the best you can. And uh, it's it's hard. It's it's frustrating. It's very frustrating. You know, you see the need. You see what what they could use, but your hands are tied because there's nothing around the area for that. So 
you know, like I said, I know that you've, you've, you've got some specific plans to contribute, but I just think from a systems perspective, we can get down this road and we can talk about this a little bit. It, it really seems kind of bleak, right? Like not a lot of resources. I don't, I don't suppose a lot of industry has come back to that area. So there's probably still challenges financially, employment wise, things like that. I know there have been some changes, but overall the big industries have still stayed out. So system wide, I mean, it's probably too broad of a question, but like from your perspective, what, what is the answer? Like how does a community rally around that and actually fix that issue with a continued lack of resources, a pretty dark picture as far as the current standing, high mental health needs, high levels of distress. I mean, what's what I guess what I'm asking is, in your opinion, what's what's the answer here? Like, What what's the way out? Well, so the way out, I, I believe it is happening. I really do. Um, like I said, you know, over the past, I guess, five years or so, there's been more help coming to the area. I mean, there's a lot of substance abuse facilities out there now in, in the Portsmouth and uh, side of the county overall, um, Lawrence County, which is Ironton right down the road. I mean, there, there's more of these facilities popping up. There's still a need probably for more, honestly. Um, and then I think it takes community leaders. And we we have that. We have that in Portsmouth right now. There there are some more different types of industry picking up. There, there are buildings that are getting uh, kind of a face cover to them now. And things are looking a whole lot better. People are starting to feel maybe a little bit of a sense of pride again, I think, when Second Street has a lot of, uh, you know, businesses out there, Chillicothe Street's connected to it, and you're seeing a lot of things going in now. Um, it could be restaurants, it could be like antique shops, what, whatever, but the more shops and more restaurants coming in, the more people get jobs. And that's what's happening. We're seeing people getting the opportunity to work now. And they are, they are. And like I said, the, the CrossFit um, situation down there with, with what they're doing, um, Doc Spartan and, and some of that, those t-shirts and things they're doing down there is just, just phenomenal work. Um, they, they do work with the counseling center down there. The counseling center has been there for, for many years and they're kind of helping out as well. So it's a team effort. Um, I think everybody wants the same thing without a doubt. And I think that's what it takes. It takes um, some community leaders uh, that is just going to not afraid to get their hands dirty. And that's that's what we had down there. It's a hardworking town. It really is. It's, you know, it's blue collar through and through. And you see that hard work coming out with, you know, what their their plans are, what they're wanting to do. And it's you're seeing the difference. You really are. Now, there's still a fight, without a doubt. It's, it's, it's still um, nowhere near from being complete. But we're seeing... We're seeing dents here and there, and it's uh, it's good to see. It kind of reminds me, it, it, polar opposites, but one of the famous case studies, you know, when uh, Giuliani took over New York City, and New York City at that time was, it had a lot of the same problems. You know, Times Square was not a safe place to visit, and prostitution was at an all-time high, crime, I mean, New York was considered a very unsafe place to go, so tourism was down. And, and so, you know, when Giuliani took over, um, as mayor, there was a lot of like, well, you got to hire a lot more cops or you got, and one of the things he focused on was all the abandoned buildings, getting them refurbished, uh, kind of a bro- what they call the broken windows philosophy of rebuilding a community, right? So no broken windows, uh, get them fixed. If uh, the subway cars have graffiti all over them, you know, take them off the track, get them cleaned up. And he just felt like there was a lot of social messaging that could take place of like, 
you know, this is what we do here. You, have, you can have higher hopes here because if you're surrounded by broken windows and trash and crime and destroyed cars and abandoned things and stray animals, you know, it just sends messages. I think about a kid walking home from school every day and seeing that stuff. It's sort of like, how big can I actually dream if this is the world that I see around me every day, you know? Yeah. Five, five years ago, Second Street was a ghost town. It was a place you did not want to go down there. Again, boarded up windows, um, a mess, really a mess. And it's sad because I think people that visit the Portsmouth area will hit Second Street. That's uh, Shawnee State's on Second Street down towards the end. Um, the murals are right by there. So there, there's a lot of traffic that comes through there. And that's, that was unfortunate for all those people to see that on Second Street. But now, where we are today, there's a lot of businesses going in. It's cleaned up. It's nice. Uh, every winter, there's a they have um, winter fest down there where they have a ice rink. It's it's a different world. And again, that comes from these leaders down there that's really put forth the effort, probably used their own money, and um, they've really turned things around. And it's it's looking great. It's uh, like I said um, when you look at the street. In de- mid-December, I mean, it's it's packed. There, there's people happy. There's people going into the local establishments for dinner, having some drinks, having a good time, and then you know you have the ice rink out there. This is it's fun, and um, it it's it's amazing the difference of what is there now compared to maybe like I said five years ago. So it's 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 coming back without doubt. Well, Main Street matters. Main Street always matters, right? And I know my wife and I made we made a big part of our decision. When we relocated to the New England area on, you know, when you tour the town and everything, and you don't necessarily hit the back roads, you go down Main Street and you see, you know, like in our particular, there's like a, a little, there's a college there and there's a little gathering area, a little roundabout with nice, you know, no, no vacant spots. And there's a church there and the gazebo. And it feels kind of like, okay, this, you know, it feels like this is a safe place. It feels, you know, and it, your first impressions go a long way uh, towards determining behavior for sure. Um, you mentioned something in there about probably using their own money. Um, a, when a lot of this was happening, you know, like you said, the pill mills and things were deteriorating. Um, and even to this point, I mean, a lot of the rural communities will report that they feel sort of forgotten or they feel sort of overlooked by state legislature or, you know, politicians at the local, state, national level. Um, do you think that's what happened there? Do you guys feel like you were overlooked and forgotten about as well. And so it's like, well, we just have to rally our own resources because nobody's coming to help kind of thing. I, I fully believe that. I fully believe that. Portsmouth is very well known for that drug pandemic. Um, without a doubt, we were all over the news. We were all over the newspapers, internet, whatever. Um, and there was, there was no help. There was nobody that came in to give us any assistance. And there for a while, it was, it was bad. It was real. it was really tough. Um, so I, I do. I, I fully, I fully believe there was really very little resources um, for Portsmouth to make a comeback. So I think that's what what makes what makes it such a great story. It you literally hit rock bottom. Portsmouth was all the way on the ground, and now it's like I said, building itself back up. There's there's uh, some things to be proud of down there about. It's an interesting case study, too, because where they're located right on the river, shipping routes, things like that, you look at a place like uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, which is obviously much bigger and um, probably, you know, certainly more well-known at this point. And um, you look at Portsmouth, if you went back to the early 1900s, they were kind of running neck and neck, 
you know, and you start to you start to wonder why did Cincinnati make that leap and become what it is today, and how did Portsmouth kind of get lost in the shuffle along the way? And 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 we say Portsmouth because that's where you know and where I know as well. But there's a thousand Portsmouths, right? I mean, there's so many of those towns around. So well, you know, Ironton right down the road, same boat. It really is. I mean, Ironton was the same same deal. Big industry. I mean, it's it was the Iron City. There was a lot of uh, you know steel industry down there as well, and it was it was booming. Um, same thing down. You know, they're they're a proud proud community with their history and athletics, um, and they they had to fight back too, and they're they're doing a good job as well. So getting back into the kind of realm of your current life with Anu and uh, thinking about. You know, the differences between people working in some of the bigger cities where Anu is located versus, you know, like Chesapeake, where I know Anu is, has a new location setting up there, I believe on 3rd Street and uh, in Portsmouth. So if somebody is new to the field, you mentioned your time when you were kind of just, you know, you were from there, so it was very easy for you to get involved in children's services. But, you know, if you're a new therapist, a new social worker, and you're getting recruited to a rural area for the first time or you're taking your first job, in the rural area, what um, what should they be ready for in terms of differences in working with that population? What can they do to to help be successful in that role? And I, I just I just wonder culture shock wise, some of the main differences because I know you've worked in Columbus and big cities as well. What are the primary differences that you've seen for people that want to work or are going to work in rural areas versus more populated areas? What what should they prepare for? I think the challenge down there is is the limited resources. I mean, you know, if you're in Columbus or in Cincinnati and you need a food bank, it's not hard to find. Um, down there, it's, it's a little bit different. You know, you may, ha- you may have one that's only on Tuesday and Thursday. You may have one that's only on the weekends. And um, you may have those that are maybe 10 a.m. to 1 p.m., where in bigger cities, it's, it's not like that. It's, it's more readily available. So, I mean, I think that having an idea of what resources are, are around, um, that 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 really would uh, give you a step up on being a, a solid case manager, say, as a new behavioral health. It's um, there there are resources out there. You you just have to kind of get your hands on the the book of them and, and and know when they're when they're available and and where they're available. And I think it's key for that too, um, given the local feel. I've I, uh, I feel more like a local to Portsmouth now after spending, you know, like I said, a couple of years there for college. But when I first went down there, it was a big shock. I was very much an outsider, you know, coming from a different place. And um, I would encourage anybody at the same time to get really involved and not just get the schedules of the food bank, but go meet the people who work at the food bank. And um, whereas in bigger cities, I feel like sometimes you, you can refer to an agency. Um, in smaller towns, I feel like it's very important that you're referring to a person. And they know you and you know them, right? Like, I'm not going to go to the Montgomery County Food Bank like Dayton. I need to talk to Joe because Joe runs things down. You know what I mean? And you have to form those personal relationships. I think that makes a huge difference. Um, and trust on both sides, you know. So what about on the flip side? If you're, if, you know, and I know you're raising your family in Wheelersburg, which is, is close to Portsmouth, but kind of in the same type of area, um, you know, whether it be dealing with mental health issues or addiction issues or just taking preventative steps to live healthy near environments that could be unhealthy, what are some things that clients or individuals can do uh, to keep themselves healthy or to raise healthy families in those environments? Sure. Well, I mean, there, there are, um, like I said, quite a bit 
that that's been recognized in, in in the in the communities. There there's places that they can go for exercise. There's um, tracks that are open up all year long. There's there's gyms available. There's actually some gyms with very discounted rates for families to to join. Um, and then like I was talking about with the CrossFit, that I don't think those guys turned down anybody. And whether you know, I don't think really financial situations matter. I think they're going to do what they can to, to help these guys out. Um, so, I mean, there are options. Um, there are, what I really like about the new behavioral health is our nursing department. Um, our nurses are really big on kind of sharing information about, you know, what types of foods you should be eating, what type of exercise you, you should be doing. And, you know, they're, they're really well-versed in those areas of, you know, helping our, our clients with, you know, a healthy lifestyle. So, I mean, I, there's there's options. Yeah, for sure. And what about on the mental health side thing? Are there things that you advise either your clients or maybe even within your own family? Like if, you know, if you're, if you're a child growing up in that area, like things to watch out for or do this, don't do that. Like what about the mental health side of things? How do they keep their goals in place? How do they keep those high aspirations and develop that, that mental resilience? Because, you know, there may be their best friends that are affected. It may be something that they drive to another team to – play football and they pass through those towns and they just see, you know, nothing left and right. Like, how do you, how do you advise people to stay mentally healthy in that environment? So, so with kids, I think that, you know, especially during the school year, obviously, and then even outside of the school year, they're still involved with school, whether that's through some sports or some after school programs or uh, some of them call it school carnivals, whatever, where they kind of keep an eye on these kids. I really feel like the kids need to touch base with, school personnel, whether that's a guidance counselor, or a principal, or, you know, teacher or whatever, and uh, really let these professionals know. Um, mental health in the schools are, uh, I feel like, vital, very vital situation anymore um, with us. You know, that, that's something that we're focused on with the new behavioral health and the school systems that we work with. You know, I feel like we've done outstanding work. Um, and, and we're going to keep expanding in those areas and those services. But I really feel the kids need to First, understand it's 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 not weak. It's not there's something wrong. Everybody has has an issue at times, and there's no um, situation that's too small, or it's not a stupid question. It's 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 not weird to feel a certain way. It's okay to ask for help, and I think uh, schools should make that part of uh, their message. You know, let you know, let the students know it's okay. Come to us, talk to us. We'll reach out and get you the help you need. And I know that kind of fits with, with some of your plans for Sciota County and beyond. So do you want to uh, do you want to talk a little bit about what you've got planned for Southern Ohio and what you know how you're going to lead anew to be part of the solution down there? Like, what is your I don't want you to open up the book and give everybody the board meeting notes. But what is your what is your strategy? What is your plan? I know it's a personal project for you. So what do you, what do you have cooking down there? So, you know, with, with our school systems in the Sciota County area, just like everywhere else, you know, yeah, yeah, they're strapped for cash. Every school system would love to hire their own therapist, their own mental health team, without a doubt. I, I've been told this, but the funds just aren't there for that. Um, so what we're doing at the new behavioral health is looking to fill that void for them. We're we're trying to bring the therapist into the school, and not just the therapist, but the whole the whole team. Um, it starts with the therapist. The therapist is going to be there during the school day, see these kids in their environment, work with them. And, you know, do what they can to help them out. However, as we all know, the, the problems don't don't stop at school. You know, they go home into um, 
some situations that aren't maybe the best at times, whether that's a, a lack of resources, they're not eating, they're not, they don't have a place to sleep. Um, they, they, you know, it's, it's unlimited the situations that these, these kids could be going through. Well, that's where we send out our team, the case manager, to kind of see that home environment and, you know, to see what they, we can assist with there. Um, you know, if, if we can uh, find a resource for a kid to get a, a twin bed and, and have a better night's sleep to where he's getting up and making the school bus on time and, and functioning better in school, then you know, I feel like we've done something great right there. And that's going to just help that kid so much more. Um, if that kid is going home and uh, there's not a lot of food there and he's going to bed hungry and can't focus on schoolwork, then we're going to find the resources and assist with getting food in the home. And again, same situation. So I, I feel like, uh, you know, schools are going to do the best they can and they do. But once you get, once that three o'clock bell rings and they get off that bus, there's a whole different world. And, you know, we want to be a part of that world and make it a better one. And with other, with other facilities down there, I mean, I know nobody knows that area better than you do. So um, what are your plans to, you know, like why a new versus some of the other facilities or other providers that are down there? Like what would be different about working with a new or how do you think that we'll approach this situation uh, from the inside out or from a local perspective that'll make a difference? I, I think with the new behavioral health is what you're going to get is kind of like a one-stop shop. I, you know, I kind of explained that the therapy was going to be there and of course the case manager. However, that's not, that's not it. Um, we're going to be able to do psychological services where these kids are able to get the medications that they, they need. Um, and what we're going to be able to do is do that psychological service during the school day. And the therapist can sit in there and actually speak to our doctor and say, this is what I'm seeing here at the school. Um, the parent will have the capacity, be if they're available, to join that meeting, whether it's in person with our therapist at the school or via Zoom. So, you know, we're going to have a, a full session with mom or dad or the guardian at another location, the therapist right there with the, the child at the school, and, of course, our doctor, you know, kind of calling the shots there. So I, I, I feel like, unfortunately, a lot of these doctor's appointments, they get missed um, or they don't even get made because maybe mom or dad works during the school day or transportation's an issue and they can't get these kids the, the services they need. We're, we're going to break down that barrier. We, you know, we're going to make sure that that child gets that service. And if there's an issue with getting the medications from the pharmacy, that's where our case management team can help out as well, or our nursing team. And, you know, if it's, if it's the case manager and there's no issues, great. If there is a question about the medication, that's where our nurse comes in. So, again, it's the one-stop shop. It's no more um, we're going to refer to therapy at this agency. Then we're going to have to try again a doctor's appointment at another agency. And before you know it, it's six months. And before the kid ever gets anything. Well, and like we talked about with that, some of the research done there, I mean, that's assuming they even have transportation. That's assuming they have, I mean, telehealth has helped a great deal, I think, with access to care. But that assumes they have stable and reliable Wi-Fi or um, even have the money to pay for the bill. You know, I mean, it's there's a whole lot of assumptions there, you know, that you bounce people around through lots of agencies. And it's like, why didn't that work? Like, well, you're not connecting to their exact situation. Why would it, you know, that's not exactly easy for them to just do all those different things. Well, that, you know, I mean, it, how often is a, a doctor's appointment going to take place at five o'clock or six o'clock when mom and dad gets home from work? And it, it's just not, it's not. 
And, you know, if they can't take time off from work or like you said, transportation, we're, we're closing these gaps. We're going to make sure that this kid gets seen, gets his medications, and we're going to be there on the back end to help mom, dad, grandma, whoever it is, understand these medications. We're going to help them with the schedule, a pill box, even if we have to. We're going to make sure things happen the right way. And again, we're going to be seeing the kid the, the very next day at school. We're going to see him after school at home. We're going to make things happen. Well, I think that, that individualized care, right, we're willing to provide each child or each family the support that they actually need. And that can look very different from family to family. You know, some people, you know, it's once a month and that's fine and that addresses their needs. But other people, it's it's almost daily. You know, I mean, I've seen I've reviewed some of these cases down there and the needs are so great. Uh, we've even joked around about, you know, they could get daily services and still not have enough. Right. Because of just I mean, years and years of neglect, if you're not receiving services for years and years, your, your problems have really piled up, and there's a lot of work to be done to get you back to stable. It know? absolutely is. I mean, there's an individual that, that we see now that unfortunately went through so many traumatic events in his life as a child and as an adult, and he he does need every day, and he gets it every day from us. And and we help him. We do we do it, and he's made some great strides. He really has. Well, you mentioned about trauma, and that's kind of one of the themes that show up on a lot of these different podcasts. Do you feel um, with the poverty situation, with the lack of resources, with the generational issues, with the addiction, do you feel that people who grew up in those rural areas are subject to more types of trauma or different types of trauma than we typically see? Absolutely. It's a recipe for trauma down there. It really is. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I talk about the good, bad, and the ugly days at Children's Services, and there was ugly trauma that I saw, whether that's uh, physical abuse, sexual abuse, um, you know, unfortunately, there were uh, some 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 deaths I had to um, encounter as well. So it, it was a it was a tough time. Um, you know, there 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 siblings that are also witnessing this and the trauma that they carry on, and you know that post traumatic stress disorder is a real thing, and it's a beast. It is an absolute beast if you don't really uh, get control of it, and it's tough. And that if you if you don't, there that trauma is going to just build and build. And, you know, uh, now we're looking at self-medicating and you, you drink and you do these drugs and you, you do what you got to do to feel normal and be and numb the, the trauma that you went through. And it's a vicious cycle. And it just, you know, you're going to, uh, you know, be a perpetrator at that point, you know, at times. And, you know, you go from victim to perpetrator. And then, again, it's just it's a cycle. And, you know, we're going to try to, to build these families up in the school system and do what we got to do. And, you know, we'll, you know, we, we, we save one family. It's, it's, it's worth our efforts. And that's, that's the goal. Because it's impossible to save one family. You save them and all of the, their children and the people that they know. And, you, you know, you're, it's like throwing a rock out in the water and the ripples go on forever. I mean, your positive impact multiplies, you know. Um, and you talked about that switch from becoming victim to perpetrator. And that reminds me of that old line about hurt people, hurt people. Right. And when you get tired of being hurt or you learn that that's what people do to each other, you go off and can carry that trauma forward and hurt other people and carry those behavioral patterns down the line. And that's how it becomes generational trauma. Um, and I also think about less, less obvious forms of trauma, right? So there's obviously, assaults and there's abuse and there's sexual abuse and things of that nature that really get people's attention. And I'm sure in children's services, you had to like filter through like, what do we have to act on right now versus what do we have to keep an eye on and things. But 
but there's also less obvious forms. Like I think food scarcity is obviously a form of trauma. You know, if you're a child and you don't know if you're getting dinner every night, I mean, that's going to create, you know, Absolutely. And there are so many kids um, over the years that we, we would have to remove from neglectful situations. And we put place in these foster homes and they hoard food. They hoard food. They, they can be in foster care for multiple years straight. Know they're very well taken care of. Know they're going to get dinner every night. No problems at all. They're in the most loving foster family you could imagine. And then you'll still find a dresser full of crackers, bread, whatever, because it's, it's a learned behavior. And so you don't know when it's gone. And you never know. You never know when the day is going to come that you're going to be glad you kept that jar of peanut butter or something stashed away. And that's what you're eating. And I think that's one of the hidden uh, impacts of the pandemic when everybody got sent home. A lot of times, a lot of these kids, most of their food source is at school. You know, and you hear stories about teachers providing breakfast. And now a lot of schools have gone to provide breakfast. But again, do they have the resources to do that? But at least they get lunch and they get, you know, a meal every day. And um, kids lost access to that when they sent everybody home, you know, during the pandemic. And, um, that was tough. It's a, definitely was a tough time. Um, you know, and so the other thing I think about too, with <clears throat> the rural communities, um, is also the financial hardship piece of that too, right? So we talk about food insecurity. If dad's losing their job or at risk of losing their job or has bounced between several jobs, that's also going to create a sense of anxiety and unease, right? Because yeah, we're getting our rent paid for now, but who knows, right? And who knows how long that's going to, how long that's going to last. Um, you know, I look through a lot of this as far as like how can rural communities combat these issues and address these issues. And, you know, some of them are, are decent ideas and more about education and things like that. But a lot of it is developing kind of coalitions that are designed to help um, has there been any efforts that you've seen in the rural communities you've worked with where they maybe partner with other rural communities and pull resources together or tap into resources that are available across communities, um, almost like a union or a coalition where they could, you know, together we're stronger, you know, alone we're isolated. Um, have you seen any efforts that way? Or do you think that would be that would be helpful or has that just been tried and not worked? I think it's definitely helpful. Um, down in the Scioto County, Lawrence County area. Um, I don't think those efforts are quite as strong as what I, I believe they can be. Um, but again, you know, there, there's some, there's some good people down there. Uh, you know, the, I, I know the counseling center is really, uh, kind of trying to lead the charge at times, but I think with the new behavioral health coming down to the area now, that's, that's really going to help everyone out. We're going to make sure that, uh, we get these going together as well. I know like in, in Athens, Athens does a very good job. Athens has uh, some coalitions. Um, the, the Mount Vernon area, it's not quite as, uh, I guess, Appalachia. I mean, it's still, you know, pretty close. But, you know, they have the KSAT, um, which is the Knox, Knox County Treatment Abuse. And, you know, they, they do a good job. So um, I think it's important. It, it definitely draws awareness, uh, a lot of collaboration and people working together. Uh, there's no... Um, stepping on toes, you know, from agency to agency, you know, we're all here to help, you know, we're all trying to do, we, we should all have the same goal. And as I go into the Portsmouth area, I really hope that is the same thing down there. I hope every um, mental health agency, every uh, substance abuse agency has the same goal. And I, I don't see how it couldn't be, but we'll, we'll, we'll see what we encounter. Here. 
Do, do you think they do? I mean, to, to broaden the conversation out a little bit, um, and not just in the Portsmouth area, but in areas anywhere that you've worked or in the field as a whole, um, I think there's agencies like a new, we, we hold our, each other accountable for like, you know, we're going to be client focused and we're going to do what's best clinically. And uh, we have an advantage in that, you know, all the decision makers in our agency are active clinicians, right? So myself and you and Dr. Boggs, we've all done this, you know, 15, 20 years as actual service providers. So we can't help but see things through a service-minded uh, servant leadership lens. And we, you know, we know what's best for these clients. But um, even though there's so many people need help and there's underserved populations and there's room for so many people, do you, do you get the sense that everybody operates from a there's no competition perspective? Or do you feel like the field has shifted and there are those kind of other players or people who maybe don't have just a service mentality? I mean, do you see a mix or do you think everybody is in it for the client? I, I definitely think there's a mix. I really do. And it's unfortunate to to admit that, but I, I believe that's there. there's some places out there that uh, aren't necessarily in it for the right reasons. Um, you know, it, it's, you, you get into this business and, you know, you, you, you have the mentality of, you know, you're going to save the world, you know, as when you're a young young kid and uh you're you're just starting in this in this world and uh you, you like i said you see a, a lot of crazy things um and then you know you you get you go to another agency and you might see a different mindset in in certain ways but you know i i think for the real clinician uh you know the people that have started out in the trenches that's worked their way up from case manager the therapist to uh director or whatever the case is i mean you know your your goals are to make lives better and you know it i'm not going to if somebody down the road is a better fit for somebody i'm not mad uh, you know go go do what you gotta do get the best service you can and if, if that's the case then that's the case and i would hope that that others kind of see it the same way you know we're all in this together so, you know and if, if we're in the portsmouth area that's our community we're all living there we want that area to be better. You know, if, if uh, you're from the outside looking in, that's probably not your, maybe your view, but you know, if you live there, it would be. Yeah. That local, that local contribution, I think helps a great deal. Um, yeah. I just think about new therapists. Cause when I was, you know, when I was starting out, it was just like, I just wanted to help. Right. And so it was like, well, who's hiring. It's almost like your children's services story is like my story. I applied to like three different agencies and, I worked with a substance abuse agency first because they hired me first, you know, right. it was like, all right, <laughs> yeah. well, I'm going to, I'm going to learn all I can about substance abuse real fast because this is my new world. And, um, it's funny you made that comment. I think I said the exact same thing. I, my first agency I got with, I said, uh, I think I told my significant other at the time, like, I'll do this for two or three months till I find something better. And I ended up leaving that company nine years later, you know? So, uh, I don't know if it's cause I didn't find anything better or you just get caught <laughs> up in the work, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, but it's interesting. So, I mean, if you're, if you're speaking to a new therapist, I mean, how do they, how do they make sure that they're with an agency that puts clients first or has the, has their priorities in order? Were there any warning signs you saw along the way? Or is there anything you would advise a new therapist? Like, Hey, if you're looking for an agency that really is about the client really about helping people, you'll see a, B and C. Sure. Yeah. I, well, I, you know, if, if I'm a, if I'm a baseball player, I want my manager to have played the game before too. Um, I feel like, uh, you know, what we offer, uh, myself, you, Dr. Boggs, we, we've been there, you know, we've been on the front lines. We've, we've 
you know, we've ran groups, we've been on call, we've, uh, my goodness, I mean, it goes on and on, this, this stuff that we've done. And I think uh, when a therapist comes to me and has a question, I'm not saying I know the exact answer every time, but I've been in that spot usually. I, I uh, have empathy. I have compassion. I understand what they're going through. I know the struggles of being a therapist. Um, so I, I feel like that really helps. And um, they, they know we're in it for the right reasons because this has been our lives. This has been our careers. We're not going anywhere. This is all we're doing. And um, I really think, uh, you know, a, a therapist that's wanting to come to an agency that has that background, um, that experience and knowing that you know, we're here for the long haul is, is important. You know, we're, uh, we're not just trying to build a business and, and sell it and then go on and, you know, work for a, uh, a sporting goods store or, you know, a, whatever, you know, we're, you know, we're, <laughs> we're, we're here, we're here for the long haul. You know, I, I, you know, I don't want to turn it into a commercial, but I've really never seen anything like a new in, in that way. Um, I've never had an agency where uh, the only people I reported to were clinicians. You know what I mean? I mean, throughout my entire career, it's always been, you know, there was certainly a mixture, right? I had clinical supervisors and, and directors and things like that, but there was always somebody up the chain who, I joke, like had an MBA or was an accountant or something like that. And you're like, you felt like you had to explain to them, like, what we actually do as they told you that you weren't doing it the right way, you know? <laughs> it, it, it's the worst. It's the worst. There, there's not, yeah, nothing like some, somebody stand up and put his hand on the wall, tell me this number and then this number. And I mean, I'm not just sitting there like, oh, blah, 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 whatever, man. You have no clue what's going on. There is some great value. There is some real value in the been there, done that. And, you know, I just think from a mindset perspective, you're not ever at odds with what's most important there for sure. Um, so that's great. Yeah, we'll we'll put all that stuff all you know. They can like go to our website and check that out. But I'm I'm very proud of that piece of it. And I think that's what we're committed to, and we've had some good response for it. Um, speaking of providers, one thing before I cut you loose, and I mean I, I do want to thank you for making the time. I, I joked earlier, but uh, speaking of this is all we do kind of thing, you know, it's it's Sunday night on a holiday weekend, and uh, you're in Mount Vernon, and you know I'm I, nobody, you know we're doing podcasts trying to bring this education to the people. So I do appreciate the sacrifice, man. It makes a makes a big difference. But um, agency, not agency-wide, industry-wide, there's a huge provider shortage, right? So when I was pouring through these numbers, one of the big things that stood out is no matter where you live, there's not enough psychiatrists. There's not enough therapists. There's not enough case managers, not enough people who are licensed and able to do this work. Um, and in the rural areas, it's 10 times worse, right? So there are some, the uh, Kaiser Foundation, kff.org, they have some really great information on provider shortage areas. And I think they set the bar at like one psychiatrist for every 4,000 people is like a considered a shortage area. And if you look with the rural areas versus the populated areas, those those underserved areas just light up on the map, right? I mean, it's always in those rural areas. So I guess it's a two-part question. Why do you think we have such a provider shortage? And what can agencies in rural areas do to address that, I mean, what's the answer there? Well, I think the reason we have a provider short shortage is because it's a hard job to do. It really is. I mean, it's it's not easy. Uh, you know, I mean, sitting behind a desk or you know, a, across from a a kitchen table and talking to people about you know depression and anxiety. I mean, and then you gotta go home and shut that off. It's it's not easy. It's not easy. And some of the stories you hear. 
um, you know, you, you, it stays with you. And it, it takes it takes some time to, to figure out how to do it. It's not it's definitely not for everybody. But I feel like the ones that do do it and do it well are, are just superheroes. I mean, they, they, they really just do amazing work and and they are needed. Um, so, I mean, I, I think that's probably the reason for the shortage. I think uh, really right now the country is more looking at mental health. Um, and I think uh, there's probably, as a result, more referrals. Um, so I don't know if there's maybe a, a shortage or it's just now there's more referrals. Um, it, it could be that way too. I, I don't know. Um, but, you know, I mean, in, in rural areas, I mean, I guess it's, it's, it's tough. I mean, uh, I know like down inside of the county, um, it is limited. It's hard to find good health and good people. Um, it takes, it takes a special type of person though. It really does. I mean, you know, the, there, there's two types of therapists or, or, or licensed social workers. There's the type that wants to go sit at the hospital and sit in their office four hours a day. And I mean, and that's fine if that's the career you want, but there's also the, the go-getters and, um, that's going to actually do therapy eight to 12 hours a day and are just their, their heads are pounding later, but that's what they do. And so, but it, it's, I, I don't really know the answer to the second. I mean, the re- recruiting is tough in those areas. I mean, of course there's some, uh, there's some beautiful areas down there, uh, you know, along the higher river, but you know, if you're wanting to compete with a big city, it's, it's, it's difficult. I don't really see how you can do it. Yeah, and to speak to the first part, I mean, I certainly have experienced that vicarious trauma that you talk about where you're sitting there for eight to ten hours a day hearing the worst that you could possibly have. I, there's a, a movie that Tom Hanks is in, The Green Mile, uh, where the guy would he, would, he would take people, he would touch their arm and, like, take their, their bad memories away, and he would puke up bees afterwards, and that's, and that's how it would leave his body. I always thought that that's what being a therapist felt like sometimes, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, you, just, yeah. you just hear it for eight, nine hours a day, and then you go home, and you, if you're smart, you don't puke over your wife or the people you care about, but you got to get that stuff out. You know, you got to find a way, whether it's working out or hitting a punching bag or riding a motorcycle or just some way to decompress, because uh, you made a comment one time a long, a long time ago that said mental health, working in mental health can be bad for somebody's mental health. And I always remembered when you said that because it's very true. And um, and so I think into the recruiting thing, I obviously don't have all the answers either. But I think agencies that care about people's well-being and try to find opportunities for them to decompress, give them autonomy over their time. That's the biggest thing. Some days you just you just can't punch that clock. You know what I mean? And be able to go like I'm leaving at lunch and not get written up for it, but actually get like congratulated. Like, hey, I'm glad you're taking this opportunity to work on your mental health, right? Like you don't want to no show on your clients on a regular basis, but as long as everybody's informed and it's like, you're making a smart choice for your future to get a pat on the back instead of a write up for that, I think is really key um, for sure. So it is. And I, I, I think again, that's where operated and owned by clinicians comes in. We understand that, you know, if we're, uh, we've been there, you know, you know, we, we, a mental health day is absolutely needed. And if you feel like you're, you're getting to that point, you know, I mean, I, we've had it, you know, our clinicians or staff will come to us, let us know. And absolutely take a break, take a break. You know I mean? If you're, if your mental health's not there, you're not going to help somebody else. For sure. 
For sure. I like how you say been there, like you didn't do sessions this week, you know. I like, <laughs> I like your optimistic tone there as if it's in the past, you know. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's definitely there. not in the past. Yeah. <laughs> Tuesday. I've been there Tuesday. So oh, that's five days of direct service. Yeah. Wow. But that's a good thing. We're growing and we're gonna be recruiting to hire building spots though. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Maybe say, maybe one of these days we'll promote you to do seven days a week. That'd be that'd be maybe. even better. So maybe. yeah. <laughs> no, but I, I, I'll wrap it up here. I do appreciate you making the time and, and make that extra effort. I, I appreciate your perspective too. Like I said, the rural area is, is so different. I was talking with our producer Ian um, before about, you know, there's been a lot of like, uh, there's a lot of movies and there's a lot of um, just media out there coverage over like inner cities, um, things like that. Right. We kind of understand the culture there and a lot of the culture that emerged from the inner city. And it seems like something that's within people's awareness, right? Like if you say, you know, big cities or inner cities or, you know, depressed areas, people kind of have a sense of that either through movies or books or music, but I don't feel like rural areas have gotten that same kind of attention. Right. And we haven't like revealed that culture to people and brought it to them the same way. Like we need, we need a, a Ben Affleck and Matt Damon from Appalachia, you know, that really tell that story um, and bring that to life. Like those guys did for Boston and, in different areas. And I mean, it's, it's ha ha, but I'm not joking because I've lived in those areas and there is a very rich culture there and some of the best people you ever meet. And the stories are uh, outstanding and phenomenal of what people have gone through and the pride that you talked about. It's developed from real lived experience. It's earned pride. It's not just selfish pride or just, you know, made up. Um, but, but people haven't really developed it that way, you know? Yeah. I've witnessed it firsthand. You know, there's, there's actually people that, that I've done therapy with maybe eight, nine years ago who uh, were in rehab and now they're actually running a successful rehab program for sales. So there's, there's great stories. And, you know, I mean, Portsmouth, uh, the Scioto County area was the home of those stories. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's just a testament to that hard work. And, you know, I get knocked down, but I'm going to get back up and they fight through. And there's a lot of good stories out there. I mean, of course you see, the relapses on the news or the, and you know, it's, uh, that's just what news is usually bad, bad stuff. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of great stories down there like that. And who knows? I mean, I, I can see the Portsmouth situation one day becoming the movie. Uh, Dreamland was a great book. It, it, it can follow with its, its footsteps. Yeah. When I think about small towns, Portsmouth in particular, I just think of, about grit. Grit and resilience. They've been through it. I'm, I'm going to get back up. It's not how hard you hit. It's how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. You know, that mentality. And I, I think it's a story that deserves to be told. And, and I'm proud that Anu is, is going to Portsmouth and, and that is, you know, is in Chesapeake and is in those areas. Um, it's not a, it's never been an afterthought. It's never been a, oh, well, while we're doing the big cities, let's try to do some of the small cities. I mean, we, we started in small cities and we've been thinking about and planning to help these folks in those small cities for a long time. And New England's a lot like that. I mean, you know, New England gets romanticized a lot of ways, but, uh, you know, I see a lot of, of Portsmouth, Ohio, in Claremont, New Hampshire. I really do. Uh, I see a lot of Athens, Ohio, in Keene, New Hampshire. Um, and so I think that those are just human problems. They're not necessarily, you know, rural problems. Everybody's facing challenges with recession and emerging from the pandemic and financial insecurities and, um you know, there's a lot of millionaires out there, but the, the vast majority of people are not living in that world. You know, a lot, the vast majority of people are living where I grew up, where you, you know, paycheck to paycheck and, 
you know, you try to scrape together a little bit and do the best you can for your kids, do the best you can for your family. And, and oh, by the way, if you get a chance to do something for yourself in the meantime, okay, maybe, but that's not, that's more of a luxury, not a, a day-to-day necessity, you know. So um, I'm glad Anu is there. I'm glad Anu is going to be helping those folks. And uh, I appreciate all you've done for Portsmouth so far. And I know, I know what you've got planned. You didn't give them too much today. You gave them a little teaser, but I know you, I know what you got planned. I'm excited for you to pull the curtain back on that and, and show Sciata County and contribute to your hometown in the way that I know you really want to. So I think it's going to be amazing. Yeah, a lot of great stuff is coming. Um, I've, saw, I've talked with a lot of uh, key players down in the area, and they're very excited of the, the services that that we offer and um, that I'm back in town to work with me, and um, I'm just I'm ready to hit it, ready to hit it, and uh, do a lot of good. And, and, yeah, I think within the next coming months, uh, the area is going to see exactly what that is. I'm back in town, says Matt Kahn. That's a, that's a frightening message, but I'm excited to see how it turns out. So, uh, Matt, thank you so much for coming on, man. I, I appreciate you. I appreciate you as a friend. I appreciate you working with us and, and all you've done for a new. And just, just thank you for this hour as well. I, I appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. That. So, I enjoyed it. It's a good time. So, yeah, to wrap it up, uh, we want to thank Ian, too. Ian's here on a weekend as well. I mean, Ian's not been on camera yet. I keep telling everybody I'm going to put Ian on camera. He's just uh, – He's just a model who happens to know how to use a computer. So we get him on camera and his whole world's going to change. But we appreciate you, Ian, for being here as well. And for any of you in a rural community or otherwise, something we didn't spend a lot of time talking about, but telehealth services are a huge boost. So don't worry if you don't live down the street from a new behavioral health location. Uh, one, you probably do, and we're just not there yet. We're probably coming soon because we're growing really fast. I know when Matt and I set this thing out and put it in motion, I don't think we could have anticipated growing like this, but we'll keep up. We'll, we'll, we'll go wherever the need is. But telehealth services, hybrid services coming in there, we can serve anybody in Ohio, um, anybody in New Hampshire, uh, anywhere within those borders. And so if you or a loved one needs mental health services, therapy, uh, you know, psychiatric services, nursing, case management, or needs substance abuse services, please reach out to us. Uh, there's a variety of phone numbers based on our location. So the easiest way to reach us is to go to www, old people say that, um, a new A-N-E-W-B-H.com. Uh, you can find us there we're on Instagram, we're on Facebook as well. Um, and if you're from a small town, there's no reason to be driving, you know, like Matt described in that, two and a half, two hours to Lancaster. Uh, there is help that can be brought to you. There is help that's close to home. Uh, so reach out. And like we said, we're great partners. We're good neighbors. If we are the people that can help you, we will absolutely put you in touch with the people who can. So um, we'd love to hear from you. Hope you reach out again. It's a new bh.com. Uh, so that's all we got. That's that's we covered rural America. I think we got it. We, we got it covered there. Um, hopefully you learned a little bit. Um, hopefully, if you're somebody in that situation, you feel empowered to reach out. Uh, we'd love to be part of your solution. So uh, until next time, I appreciate you listening and uh, take care of yourself and at every opportunity to take care of each other as well. Thanks so much.